So let me ask you a straightforward, somewhat simple, but very, very important question. And this is the key thing we got to wrestle with in life. Is Jesus Christ enough? That's what I need you to wrestle with today. Is Jesus Christ enough? And by enough, I don't mean enough for us as Christians to have a good Christmas celebration year after year or enough in order for us to theologically call him the Savior who died for our sins. Of course he is enough for all that. No, by enough, I mean that when you think of your personal daily life, you individually, with all of your ups and downs, tragedies and joys, highs and lows, ask yourself right now, cactus and venue, ask yourself, is Jesus enough? Is he enough to meet your deepest needs? Is he enough to satisfy your deepest longings? Is he sufficient in and of himself to be your all and all? I mean, let's get down to brass tacks. If your emotions are going haywire and you're spiraling into a vortex of depression or a hurricane of anxiety, and some of us have been there and no one know what that's like, ask yourself, is Jesus enough at that time? Uh, if your marriage begins to crumble and you don't know which way to turn or if joy is ever going to come again or if even you have the strength to stay in it, ask yourself, is Jesus Christ enough? So much so that if your finances careen out of control and the next chapter of your life is going to be chapter 7 or 11, ask yourself, is Jesus Christ enough? So much so that if one of your kids whom you raised to know Jesus and make right decisions goes off the deep end and literally breaks your heart and tests all of your patience, ask yourself, is Jesus enough? So much so that even if you're in a spiritual funk where confusion and dryness have been the name of the game, ironically, as your pastor, I would ask you, is Jesus enough? You see, as I thought about this this week, I am fully aware that this kind of questioning seems ludicrous to a self-sufficient, unbelieving world that can barely get to theism when it comes to God, believing in God in general. And this might even sound like a strange line of questioning to a placid believer who's just content taking up a pew seat every Sunday. But for any of us who have entered in to a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, where we aren't just dabbling with the outer markers of Christianity, but where we're fully in when it comes to who Jesus is and what he is about, then this question before us, is that Jesus enough, is what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals, when it comes to what one author calls going from a fan to a follower of Jesus. Theologians call this issue before us the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, and it begs the question that you and I need to wrestle with, and that is that no matter what life throws our way, is Jesus truly enough and sufficient, enough to hold me and sustain me, keep me afloat, keep me focused, keep me obedient, keep me in the ring with God and his reality when things get difficult. Do I really and truly believe that? And even more importantly, do I have the kind of walk with God in which that is a reality that he is enough? 
Because here's the deal, guys. As we get to the final words of the New Testament book of Galatians, the book that we've been studying for eight, nine months this year at our church, after six theologically robust chapters, after more than 20 hard-hitting, insightful paragraphs that we turned into more than 20 sermons, Paul the Apostle is now ready to give us his closing words. And get this, he's going to write them with his own hand. He's been using a scribe up to this point when he first wrote this letter 2,000 years ago. And now he's going to pick up the pen and, and coin the last few words very personally himself. And in so doing, he's going to nudge us right up against this question before us today, is Jesus enough? So let's read about it. Here we go. Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. You can either follow along in your own Bible or use the scripture on your outline or, of course, look up here on the screen and follow along as I read. He says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that you may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not keep themselves, keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So the question before us is, is Jesus enough? And believe it or not, these closing words in Galatians provide for us the answer. And it's our main point this morning. And here it is. Look up here on the screen. And that is that a faith relationship with Jesus is 100% sufficient to fully allow you to handle anything that life throws your way. I know it's a mouthful, but let me repeat that. It is so important that you and I feel this challenge today. That a faith relationship with Jesus, the scripture is telling us, is 100% sufficient in fully handling anything that life throws our way. And so whether it's a dead-end job that we hate or a marriage that has gone south that we don't think we have the strength to stay in and endure, or whether it's a rebellious kid, a depleted checking account, haywire emotions, or even soul-sucking doubt, one of the things that these closing words of Galatians make clear is that nothing can come our way. That the person and work of Jesus is not enough to develop in us the kind of personhood and identity to be enough to get us through difficult times. And, and I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, as I have thought over the years, but how? I mean, Jamie, this just sounds so Pollyanna. It's just too good to be true. I mean, maybe guys like Billy Graham can get this, or my really spiritual grandmother who's really religious, but I live in the everyday world. I'm a normal person. How can you make claims like this for me? But you see, if you're at all tempted to think like this, I would submit to you that you're wrong. 
That believe it or not, the kind of walk with God through Jesus that I'm describing here today is available to any and all who believe in Jesus. In fact, this is what scriptural writers of old referred to as the normal Christian life. And that anything less is actually abnormal. It's an aberration of what God has planned for us in simply being Christians. And here's the core, guys. Here's what separates the men from the boys. And that is that according to this text, it has everything to do with our understanding of the cross. This is going to shock some of you. Our understanding of the cross. And by the cross, I obviously mean Jesus' cross, the one that he was hung on 2,000 years ago. I don't know if you guys caught it or not, but our passage before us today, and this is key to understanding this, twice mentions the cross of Christ there in verses 12 and then 14. But then it does something completely scandalous to any first century Greek, Roman, or Jew who would have read these words 2,000 years ago. It does something that would have created an audible gasp in the churches in Galatia when they first read this. It combines the cross with that word boast. Look again at verse 14. Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I need you to feel right now, and I'm going to help you feel this, is that when they first read those words, it was scandalous to their worldview and to their understanding. That word boast means back then what it means now. It was something you were proud of. It was something that you took confidence in. It was something that you would brag about to your friends and to your family. So you land a cherry job and you boast. If you're dating a beautiful girl, you're going to boast. If you're driving a nice new car, you're going to boast. If you're one of the fortunate few to be a Cleveland Browns fan, you're going to boast. I mean, the reality is that there are plenty of things that you and I find in this world that we're going to boast in. What you need to see is that Paul says that when it comes to the cross of Jesus and his identification with it that we're going to talk about in a second, he boasts. And this is a wild thing that he does. Again, if you were a first century reader, I'm telling you, you would be either completely and totally confused at this point or more likely, you'd be offended at what he was saying. You'd be thinking, who in their right mind would boast about a cross? You see, the cross back then, as some of us know, was a tool of death. It was a method for putting to death criminals who had been convicted of a capital crime. It would be akin, this is no stretch of the imagination, to an electric chair or a needle today. When you and I think of capital punishment today, it's an electric chair or a needle. That's how, how people who break the law deserving death are eliminated. And though Jesus was indeed put to death on a cross, and, and indeed they knew that he was put to death for their sins on a cross, and indeed he rose from the third day from that death on a cross, what you need to know is that most first century Christians were not exactly proud of the fact that their Savior and Messiah died in such a shameful way. And so listen to how Ronald Fung, in his rather thorough commentary on Galatians, said it. This says it. This should clear it up for you. Look up here on the screen. He says, to his, Paul's contemporaries, the cross bespoke unspeakable shame 
And its mention, even the very thought of it, provoked horror and sheer disgust. You see, the cross at this time in church history was not a proud or even religiously quaint symbol. And that's what I need you guys to see. I mean, over the last 2,000 years, for good and for bad, we have completely tamed the cross. Have you noticed that? I mean, we've made it a fashion symbol today. I mean, even 40 years ago, when I would see somebody, say, on a bus or something wearing a cross, I'd say, oh, are you a Christian? And now if I say that, what kind of look do I get? What, are you an idiot? I mean, it just, that, that's not the way we see the cross in our culture. But we adorn our churches with crosses. And we think, oh, isn't that nice? That must be a church. Or, or we see a gravestone with a cross on it and a nice scripture underneath it. I mean, the cross is now a symbol, positively, of Jesus and all that he means to us. But what you need to know is that back when the New Testament was being written, within just a few decades of Christ's death and resurrection, I'm telling you, the cross was not a quaint, nice, religious symbol. Not at all. In fact, it wasn't really until the time of Constantine, three centuries later, that the cross would become established as the symbol of Christianity. Before that, they had a fish, an ichthus, and things like that. But it wasn't even until the second century that they even began to consider the cross as a symbol of their faith. And when Paul originally penned these words, guys, the cross was still and solidly a shameful symbol of death. So here's what I need you to feel. And this is going to be hard for some of you to hear, but and I don't even like saying what I'm about to say, but, but this is the association you need to see. The best paraphrase of verse 14 I could give you for today would be this, because this is what they would have felt when we insert the word cross. Far be it from me to boast, except in the electric chair of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know. Far be it from me to boast, except in the needle of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, I don't even like saying that. Do you like hearing it? It's not a good association. Like you say, why would you associate Jesus with that? That's what they would have felt 2,000 years ago when Paul the Apostle comes along and says, I boast in the cross. This was so core to his walk with Jesus. Look at how Fung will go on to wrap up the quote I started earlier. He says, but Paul exalts in the cross of Christ as the sole ground and object of his boasting, thereby showing conclusively the absolute centrality of the cross in his thinking. I like how Keller says it. He says the cross was not just a help to Paul. It was his identity. And so the only thing you and I need to wrestle with then once we get that is what in the world does all of this mean? <laughs> I mean, as you and I are looking to walk with God today, as we're looking to have as rich and deep of a relationship with Jesus, maybe even to the point that I baited you with earlier that you can find your sufficiency and satisfaction in him, what does it mean for us today? Three things I want to share with you in our time remaining about the cross. Three things that Paul goes on to say in the next three verses that links this cross to a rich understanding of what it means to walk with God. And here's the first thing, and that is that the cross provides a permanent barrier between us and the world. 
The cross provides a permanent barrier between us and the world. Look at me how Paul goes on to say this in the second half of verse 14. After he's just laid out that his boasting point is the cross, he says this, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, now folks, please dial into this. This is an unusual statement in the Bible's portrayal and understanding of the cross and the crucifixion. I mean, most of us know that the heart of Christianity is that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins. We teach that in Sunday school to our kids. We get that. But, but Paul, notice here, is taking this a radical step further when he says, and by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does that mean? I want you to look up here on the screen. As many of you know, I tend to think in kind of a linear, analytical fashion. So I've put it down as best as I can to explain it to you, what I think is going on here. And when you add up some of the other New Testament passages that talk about this exact same topic. And it's here where we're going to separate the men from the boys. Uh, look at the top there on the left. This is the starting place. Most of us know this if we're Christians. Jesus died on a cross for our sins. The Bible makes that very clear. And the point of that, if you follow the line down there to the left, is that when Jesus died, he secured for us the forgiveness that we needed before God. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute in buying us the forgiveness that we needed before Almighty God. But then as 2 Corinthians 5 makes clear, that when Jesus died because of his righteousness, we also then become the righteousness of God. We are righteous in his sight. So two things happened when Jesus died on the cross, and that is that he was there buying our forgiveness. He was there helping us become the righteousness of God so that when we place our faith in him, we now have a pathway to God. Isn't that awesome? That's the gospel, that you and I can now have a relationship with God based on what Jesus has done for us. Our sin no longer separates us from him. But you see, what you need to know, that's just 101 level stuff. Now look at what Paul's saying here in Galatians and other places. Follow the line there to the right at the top. And notice that what he's saying here is that when we placed our faith in Christ, there was more to it than just that. We became crucified as well. In other words, when you became a Christian, there was a lot more going on than originally meets the eye that when you trusted in Christ, the Bible says at that moment, you identified with his death and you became crucified with him. And if you're tracking with that, you got to ask, well, what does that mean? Well, follow the line down because here's what the scriptures say. When that happened, you died to yourself and you died to this world. So think of all the passages you might know. Romans 6 says that when we accepted Christ, we died to sin. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, when you accepted Christ, you now are crucified with Christ, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And then in Philippians 3, you have died to the things of this world, considering everything a loss. And then now here in Galatians 6, that you were crucified to the world. Please see, there was a lot more going on on the day of your salvation than you might have understood. That when you identified with Christ, you weren't just saying he died for me, you died with him. And that's the claim that God says happened the day that you came to him through Christ. 
And so maybe now you can see why Paul would sum it up this way in Philippians 3, verse 8, when he says, Indeed, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, folks, this is very important. The cross is not just a place where Jesus died for our sins, though it is that. But it's also a place where through our faith in him, we die as well. We die to self and we die to the world. And we take on Christ and all that he is. And maybe now you can see that that's why the Bible can say that he is your sufficiency. Because when you died with him and he now lives in you, he is enough. It's like fair trade organic coffee. I know I'm going to get some heat for this illustration. Uh, But for those of you who are into that stuff, fair trade organic coffee is coffee that you're only going to buy and eat because it has a fair, equitable justice trade behind it. In a very real way, God said a fair trade has occurred here. My life for yours. But it's not really fair because God showed us tremendous grace in it. But a trade occurred, whether you realized it or not. The moment you accepted Christ, he says, I died for you and now you are dead. You are dead to the things of this world. You are dead to yourself. Now watch this. This is so cool. God says that when you are dead now to these things, and what that means is that your daily call is to lay down your life repeatedly to him, everything, your marriage, your kids, your emotions, your jobs, your hobbies, your hopes, your dreams, everything. And as you now daily lay those things at the foot of the cross and say, God, I know my daily journey is to die to these things, good and bad, everything. It's hidden in Christ. It's laid down before you. Now watch this. God says, and I will choose what to resurrect right before your very eyes. So you and I lay everything down before God, our good marriage and our bad marriage, our emotions that work right and the emotions that don't, our kids that are doing great and our kids that aren't, the financial house that we built that's good and the one that's a mess. No matter where you are, you lay it all down before God because we're dead to the world. We're dead to everything. And God says, then I will choose based on my glory and my love for you what I choose to resurrect. And you see, folks, that's the daily journey that you and I have. But I'm telling you, it's a daily journey that the average Christian today has no clue about and they don't live. It's what Larry Crabb calls good enough Christianity. Most of us are content with just being good enough, coming to church, having a daily quiet time, serving a little bit, giving some money. And we wonder why we feel so empty. It's because we're not dead yet. We are positionally, but we're not practically. Let me give you some examples that I think will help you relate to this. Give me a click here on the screen. Cactus and Venue, look on your screen. Anybody, you guys probably don't know who this guy is. It's going to date me tremendously. This is a guitarist by the name of Phil Keggy. Uh, When I became a Christian back in 1981, do we all understand? There was very little Christian rock music back then. I had just come out of a decadent decade of the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and Kiss, and now I was saved and excited about Jesus. And, I mean, there was no Christian radio back then. There were very, very few Christian records. Records are like CDs, but they're bigger and made of vinyl, and some of you might remember them. The rest of you have to look it up on, on, on Google or something. But there were very, very few Christian rock records, but there was a few guys around by the name of Randy Stonehill and Larry Norman and Chuck Gerard and this guy, Phil Keggy. 
He's got an interesting story. Kagi uh, was with a band uh, in the Midwest called Glass Harp, and he was such an amazing electric guitarist that Jimi Hendrix, before he died, actually said that he felt that Phil Kagi was the best electric guitarist he knew. He was that good. And in the early 1970s, this guy Kagi had a radical conversion to Jesus Christ, and he cut one album really quick that, I don't know, wasn't that great, it was an acoustical album that was kind of sing-songy, and again, but it was the best I had, so I used to listen to it. And, and then in 1972, ironically, he put his guitar down, and he moved to New York City, and he joined a church and, and started to grow radically in his faith for the next three years. And for the next three years, he cut no albums, he did hardly any music, and the reason was is because as we're talking about what we're doing here today, everything got crucified at the cross for Phil Kagi, including his guitar. And after a few years, I don't know exactly how the Lord said it, but basically the Lord probably said to him, hey, what's that guitar doing there? I, I want to use that for my glory. Let's resurrect that thing now that you're a new creation, now that your life is hidden in me. And he picked up his guitar, and over the last 40 years, this guy's kind of the grandfather of modern-day Christian rock. So as those of you who don't like it, this is the guy you can blame. For those of you who do like it, fall down and call this guy blessed. Because he has led many of us. He's won Dove Awards and other things into an amazing, rich understanding of God within our contemporary culture. But he did it through dying and then seeing what God resurrected. Hey, if you don't like that example, let me give you another one. This is a C.S. Lewis, as many of you know. C.S. Lewis was written some amazing books. Mere Christianity is one of them, and the Chronicles of Narnia. And, you know, Lewis didn't come to Christ till much later in his life. And I love how he describes his conversion. He says that he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Isn't that a great phrase? And it was because he became intellectually convinced about Jesus Christ, but his will didn't want to surrender to Christ, and so he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom. But he eventually came into the kingdom, and it's interesting because here he was a prominent professor at Cambridge and at Oxford, and he was really good at explaining complex literature to people to understand it, and he, he, he laid all that at the foot of the cross. And for a while, he wrote nothing. And, and then basically God said, pick up your pen. I have use for that pen. I want to resurrect that pen. And he wrote things like Mere Christianity and The Weight of Glory and The Abolition of Man and some books that have affected the entire thought of Western civilization. Are you seeing a pattern here? I didn't know any of this theology when I first became a Christian. All I knew is that in 1981, I was absolutely on fire for Jesus Christ and I had done enough sinning in my first 18 years of life that I was ready to put that stuff behind me. So in 1982, after I'd been a Christian for about a year, as I was walking with the Lord and laying everything down before him, I, I gave up dating, which was a big thing for a strapping young hunk like me back in the Midwest to give up dating. And I was a freshman in college, and, you know, I'm, I'm all excited about my walk with God, and I just said, I give up girls. And for the next four years, I only had two dates by my choice, and, and, and both of them were disasters. Uh, the first one was a gal who was really godly, and she was in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and I thought, well, maybe it's time I start dating a godly woman, and so I took her out, and halfway through the McDonald's, I realized I wasn't remotely attracted to this woman. She was godly, but I didn't find her attractive, and I thought, I can't go any further with this, so I said, enough of this, and I gave it up, and another year later, I, I did the opposite. I asked out this blonde bombshell, and uh, Kim knows all about this. I asked out this blonde bombshell... <laughs> 
And, and I got halfway through that date, and she's telling me about her life, and I'm thinking, this gal is not deep. She's a mess inside. She'll never make a pastor's wife. This thing's over. And so I, I, I moved on. I graduated college just having laid that thing down before God. I said, God, I don't want to mess around. I'm not going there. During the summer of going into seminary, my best friend Bill back in uh, Scrin Falls uh, picked up the phone one day. He picks up the phone in my kitchen. He goes, we're going to call Kim Jika right now, and you're going to have a date with her. I said, put the phone down. I don't want to have a date. I don't want to go out with anybody. I'm dead to that. I don't need that. He said, you're going to call this woman, and you're going to have a date with her. She's right for you. So I said, put the phone down. I'll do it later. So later on, I called up Kim Jika. And I said, why don't we go out and get some dinner after Bible study this week? She said, yes. I kid you not, this is a true story. You can ask my wife. I, uh, on our first date, I said to her over dinner, I was very analytical about it. I said, now let's just get something clear. I do not want you to get too excited about this. <laughs> I did. I said, I'm not playing games. I, 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 I'm not looking to get married. I don't want a woman. And most of them are just, it's not right. So, so maybe a friendship will develop out of this, but don't add your hopes up for anything more than that. And I love this woman. She said, chill out. She said, I, I get that, but it's not as easy as you think. And so we spent about three months just casually dating that summer. And I went off to seminary and she went back to her junior year of college. I drove down a few times to see her at Miami University in the fall of 1986. And after about three months with this woman, I just knew that she was the one for me. I knew that this was the woman God wanted me to marry. This is where it gets thick. I told her one day in about November of 86, I was down visiting her at school, and I said to her, again, in a very analytical way, I said, well, you know what? I need you to know that, that I think you're the one that God wants me to spend the rest of my life with. And I just think I can safely say that I love you. This is where it gets good. She looked at me and said words that have gone down in infamy. She said, I'd rather give you insecurity than false security. I'm not quite there yet, so slow down, and I'll let you know when I'm ready to reciprocate. Oh, You know, I'm serious. You know what I said? This is the woman for me. One year later, we were engaged. Two years later, we were married, and the rest is history. We celebrated 25 years last year, and she's still with me. I can't believe it. That was one of my very first lessons in laying it down before God. Honestly, just lay it down and see what he resurrects. I had a lot of peace during that time. Uh, last year, I had a, another experience with this that was really heartbreaking for me. I'm going to be very vulnerable with you here because, you know, that's easy to share that one because that was so long ago. About a year ago, I told the elders I want to go get my doctorate. I've been wanting to get a doctorate for years. I don't think it's just for prideful reasons or anything like that, but I, I really do want to um, just get more education and, you know, I, I just, I, I'd love to do some further study. And, and I will admit, too, that it's a little bit insecuring at times when I look at the pictures out there in the foyer and I see Dr. Bohr, Dr. Bab, Dr. Sanuki, and Dr. Dell, who say Dr. Anderson and then Jamie. And I, I just, you know... <laughs> I know you guys, or most of you, love Jamie, but I just think, you know, I'd love to pursue further studies. So I entered a year ago into a very, very robust doctoral program out on the East Coast, and I was all excited for it. It was a year ago last August, and I flew out there. I had read books all summer in preparation for this. And within two days of being out there, I absolutely realized I'd made a colossal mistake at this season of my life. I realized that this was going to take way too much time 
that I don't have the margin to do this. We're entering into a capital campaign for our church. I'm preaching stronger than I ever have, meaning in preparation and spending time to study. And that if I go through with this, it will have profound ramifications on my church. So I called Barry Asmus, who's here today. I called uh, Daryl Dell, who's say. I called Jeff Goebel, the chairman of our board. And they, they were all so funny. They said, yes, we agree. We've been telling you that, but we, we're going to let you have your space anyways. And so after two days, I dropped out of this program. It was one of the hardest things I, I'd done in my life in the last 10 years. I, I, I took the, the back roads back to the airport. I booked a flight back here to Phoenix. And I took three hours to drive the back roads through North Carolina where I was at back to the airport. And I, I don't ever cry. I was almost on the verge of tears. I was like, God, this just stinks. I'm giving up a dream I've had for 20 years and I don't understand. I don't want to be bitter at my church and I don't think I will, but I just, because I'm making the choice, I just don't understand. And honestly, there I was at the foot of the cross just saying, God, I have to lay this before you. I was in a funk for the next two weeks. I was like, don't talk to me. I, I, don't, I, I wasn't singing. I wasn't anything. Things is just a loss. And I gave it up to God. And you know what the cool thing is, guys? It's still at the foot of the cross. It's still right there. I, I have no idea whether God will resurrect that or not. He might. He might not. But now, a year and a half later, I got to tell you, when it comes to that, I have peace. I have peace. Why? Because my identity is in him, not in a doctorate. My identity is in being. I thought about this this morning. I have a fourfold identity that I think of every day. I'm a child of God. I'm a husband to Kim. I'm a father to three kids, and I'm a pastor to you. That's it. That's where my identity is. In that order, by the way, I'm a child of God. My identity is in Christ, and everything else is gravy. And maybe now you can see why when we have this rich understanding of the cross where we lay everything down and we say to God, it's all yours, it's given up to you, you can resurrect what only you want to resurrect, we have peace. And I know how some of you are thinking. You think, well, how do you do that? I mean, that sounds like a really tall order. Uh, we're running fast out of time. We've got just a few minutes left. But notice with me two other things here that the text goes on to say. This is really life-giving. Notice with me the second thing, because this answers the question, how do you do this? And that is that the cross brings the fullness of God's kingdom into our daily lives. Did you know that? When you understand that you are dead to this world, that you are dead even to your flesh and, this, and yourself, and you daily lay things down at the cross, God rewards you by bringing the fullness of his kingdom into our daily lives. How do we know this? Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now focus on that. What is a new creation? 2 Corinthians 5.17 gives us a clue. It says in the same vein that the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That when you became a Christian, all the old was gone and the new has come. But again, if you're tracking with this, what is this new that has come? I mean, what does it mean to be a new creation? What does it mean that new has come into our lives? Well, here it is. Look at Ephesians 1.3. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Whoa. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God in your salvation has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Let me challenge you even more. Look at how Peter would say it when he latched onto this. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I looked up that word all in the original Greek language this week. You know where I'm going with this. And you know what that word literally means? Say it with me. 
all, all things. God has given us all things that we need through his divine power, everything that we need for life and godliness. Don't miss this, folks. As new creations in him, he avails us of everything that we need to walk with him and for him to be our sufficiency. But make no mistake, it goes back to the cross. It's only reserved, as we're going to see in just a second here when we wrap up, it's only reserved for those of us who have identified ourselves with the crucifixion of Jesus and realize that we are dead. We are dead men and women walking. But as we are dead, God chooses what to resurrect. And the cool thing is, is that he then resources us with everything that we need in order to follow him and obey him. And this is where most Christians just don't get it. I mean, honestly, think of your self-talk day in and day out. I've been there. I get it. You say, oh, I just don't know if I can do that. I, I just, I mean, Billy Graham can do that. Maybe Jamie and, you know, I got, I got, I got again, that, that godly grandmother of mine, but I don't know. I'm just, I, I don't know if I can do that. Here's the deal. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God says, is this not so cool? You have everything in you to find your sufficiency in him. Everything. And, and, and this isn't just like positive thinking stuff. No, when I say in you, I mean the Holy Spirit. I mean the full resources of the kingdom. That God, who loves you, has said he's equipped you to be able to find your satisfaction and sufficiency in him. If you don't believe me, what do you think it means in the Psalms when it says that he is a father to the fatherless and a husband to the husbandless? What do you think that means? That means that when tragedy hits somebody's life, like being an orphan or even being a widow or a widower, God says, I am enough. I am enough. But you see, this is so foreign to our thinking because we've convinced ourselves in our comfort-laden, resource-rich American culture that we need all these other things. And you don't. Ask any Christian right now living in an underground church in China who barely has access to a Bible but has their joy in Christ if we need most of the stuff that we have. We don't. And I'm not here to guilt trip you in what you have. I live in Scottsdale too. I get it. I'm thankful for that. But you know, only in America would you ever see a commercial around Christmas for a Lexus. I mean, what's that about? And a big bow on it. Only in America would you see a commercial for Zales where you give a $10,000 ring to somebody for Christmas. Again, I'm not, don't go return that necessarily if you bought that. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just saying don't convince yourself you need any of that. Do we all understand that? You don't. I shared with one of the congregations this week that when my dad was a boy, he grew up in the Great Depression, you know what he longed for in his stocking? An orange. Some of you remember those days. He was excited if he got an orange in his stocking. Can you imagine that kind of world? I got an orange sitting on my counter anytime I want it. By the time I got to be a little kid, you know what I wanted for Christmas? I wanted like a new record or something like that. That was the world I grew up in, but we graduated from an orange to a record. And now we're looking at Lexuses and Zales rings and trips to Disney World. And again, there's nothing wrong with all of that. It's just that we don't need any of that. My dad would be the first to admit, even in the Great Depression, he didn't need an orange. <laughs> Just a nice gift. See, God gives us everything that we need. He gives us all that we need in him, if you're willing to die in him. Because here's the closing thought, and that is that when you finally get this, the cross 
results in the tangible blessings of peace and mercy. It's true. Look at verse 16. It says, and for all who walk by this rule, what's the rule we're talking about? The rule of identifying with the cross. For all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And here's my closing thought to you. Isn't when you are most hurting, isn't peace and mercy enough? It really is. Think about that. I mean, if your emotions are going haywire and God decides to give you peace and mercy, isn't that going to help? If you're at your wit's end in your job and you can't stand it, or if you don't have a job and you really want one, but you're in a waiting game, if God gave you peace and mercy, wouldn't that, like, take the edge off it? If you're struggling with a kid who's rebelling, or if your heart is broken by a marriage that didn't produce what you thought it would, and God chooses to give you peace and mercy in the midst of that, wouldn't that make a difference? See, peace and mercy make all that. That's why when Jesus was here and the angels appeared, they said, what? Peace on earth, right? Because they know that peace makes all the difference. Again, it's just that you and I have convinced ourselves we need more, but we don't. We need peace and mercy. And for all who live by this rule, for all who dare to identify with Jesus in such a way that you are dead to yourself and you are dead to this world, peace and mercy will rule in your soul. Even for a guy who gives up a doctoral program at this season of his life, and within a couple of weeks of mourning and grieving that, you know what started to invade my soul? Peace and mercy. I'm like, thank you, God, for that. Maybe now, as we wrap this up, you can understand some words of Jesus. Jesus said a lot of things that I think confuse a lot of people. At one point in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this. He said, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what we're talking about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing grace and peace and mercy that you do show us in the gospel. And God, at this Christmas season, as we're focused on Jesus, I pray that we would not be shy to focus on the baby that eventually grew up to be a man and the man who declared himself God and the God who went to a cross for us. And though, Lord, scandalous at first, this cross truly becomes our boasting point. It becomes our very life as we realize that it's a permanent barrier between us and the world if we're willing to die. It becomes a place where we're fully resourced by kingdom strength through your Holy Spirit, and it becomes a place of grace and mercy and peace. So God, I pray that as each of us go into our week ahead today and give cogent thought to our lives and to our faith in you, and are we really willing to go deeper, that God, you would bless us with courage and bless us, Lord, with the ability to move deeper with you, even in the midst of the pain and the darkness that we might be going through. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that there's not one person here today or at Cactus or at Venue that's beyond the scope of your grace and your reach. We're comforted by that. We're empowered by that. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.